You're listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Today, you don't have to go to kids' church. Uh, I mean, have to go. Kids' church is amazing. And I actually texted Mr. Billy, Mr. Trevor today. They were going to be teaching kids' church. Oh, I texted him on Thursday. And I said, hey, you know what? This week, I feel like we should keep the kids in big church. So I'm glad to have you kids. Thanks for sticking around with us today. Um, Take your Bible and turn to the very end of the Bible. Revelation chapter 21, the second to last chapter in God's Word. And today's message, we're doing something that we have never done before, okay? This is extremely rare. I have never preached a standalone message at Doxa Church. Uh, We've had other people preach standalone messages when I've been gone, but whenever I'm here, I'm always in a series. We're working through a book of the Bible. But we just finished a series in Malachi, and Malachi talked a lot about heaven and hell, especially towards the end of that prophecy. And we're going into 2 Corinthians in a couple weeks, and I just said, you know what, now's the time to have a little standalone bridge sermon in between Malachi, in between where we're going, and I am thrilled to to share God's word with you this morning, even though it's something that's a little unique for me, all right? And uh, as you're turning to Revelation 21, I want to say this too, I read a book entitled Heaven, by a man named Randy Alcorn. I've referenced this book before, but that book really gave me a fresh perspective on eternity, and it really put me on a journey of discovering more and more. So a lot of what I'm saying today, initially it all got started from there, and I'm using that as a resource today, which, is, which I just want to point out to you because I think you would be blessed by that book as well. But we are here in church. We've just worshiped Jesus Christ. We know what he did for us, and for a lot of Christians, that's where it ends. You know, that's, that's, that, and that's, that's all we need. We don't need any more than that. But I'm going to show you today that there's actually more. Heaven is actually better than you think. So if you're there in Revelation 21, hopefully you're already there, I want to read verses 1 through 8 to get us started this morning to launch us off. So Revelation 21, verse, verse 1. This is God's word. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water, of life without payment, to the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, 
sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of, lake of fire that burns with sulfur, which is the second death. All right. So, so much good there. A big warning right there. Uh, I can't wait to discover all that there is to discover about the new earth. But the very sad reality about our modern Christian faith, if there's anything, is that a lot of people are completely asleep at what the Bible actually teaches about our eternal home. And I heard this all the time growing up, not necessarily from my parents, but from a lot of other sources. David, heaven is going to be so good. You just can't imagine how good it will be. Anybody ever heard that? Anybody has said that? I've said that before. Can't, I can't even imagine. It's just going to be so good. Can't even imagine. But my question is, does that get you very excited about heaven? Just saying, you can't imagine how great it will be. Well, I would say maybe for four seconds it gets you excited. But if you don't have anything tangible to latch onto in your mind, that excitement quickly diminishes. So you have that going on in the Christian world, and then you couple that with the fact that we get a lot of, of messages about what heaven is going to be like from every other source that, that subconsciously affect us all the time, right? From like children's books to TVs and movies and conversations with our friends. You get all this perspective dumped on you about what heaven will be like often before you even read the Bible for yourself. You follow me on this? You see, you, you see, you see how that, that does work? It works that way. So the result is we can get a horribly skewed picture of heaven fed to us by sources that are not telling us what scripture reveals about heaven. There's a lot in the prophets, Ezekiel and Isaiah, that talk about the eternal new earth. There's a lot in Revelation that tells us about heaven. And a lot of people let that get overshadowed by this subjective, everybody has an opinion view on the afterlife that is disconnected from the doctrine of the new earth. And that book, uh, Heaven, that I referenced earlier, Randy Alcorn, the author, actually tells a story about how there was a pastor who came to him. This is a seminary-trained pastor of a large church. And this pastor confessed to him that, you know what? When I think about heaven, it makes me a little depressed. I get sad when I think about it. And, and I wish I could just, like, cease to exist. That was his view of heaven. That should tell you there's a problem out there in our Christian circles with what we believe and what we understand about the place that we're going to be with Jesus. And maybe you've shared those same concerns. Chances are probably some of us have. So... If you picture heaven with a bunch of little babies floating around with bow and arrows, and, and maybe you're in white flowing garments, and you're just in this never-ending worship service that just goes on and on and on, day after day, you're singing all these songs. Does that sound super attractive to you? You know, let's just be real. Um, you know, maybe you don't like singing. Maybe music is not your cup of tea. Um, and then you're up in this some, you know, ethereal space, that is totally unlike Earth, right? It's like, it's like Vulcan or Kryp Krypton or something. It's just like this, this place up there in the sky and the clouds. You can be honest. That's not very appealing. 
It's not very appealing for us because we are humans who, who live on earth, right? And, and that's part of who we are. We're going to talk more about that. Uh, but I do believe that that distorted view of heaven is way more common than you think. I think it affects us a little bit more than you may even realize. And if just relaxing all day every day with no mountains, no beach, no job to do, no, no purpose really besides just, all right, I'm going to bow at the feet of Jesus. Nothing wrong with bowing at the feet of Jesus. I don't want to minimize that. The more you get to know Jesus Christ and you love him, the more you want to bow and worship him. And I think when we see him face to face, we're going to love him even more to a greater degree. But he doesn't ask us to simply bow and do nothing but bow on our knee all day, every day now. So what makes us think he's going to ask us to do that in eternity in the new earth? What God made us to desire, and therefore what we do desire, is exactly what he reveals to us in his word. He promises to all those who follow Jesus Christ four things. A resurrected life, a resurrected body, a resurrected Christ on a resurrected new earth. That's what we're promised. Our true desires correspond, correspond precisely to God's plan. And it's not that we need to stifle our innate connection with the earth and pretend that suppressing our God-given drive to work and to create is a good idea. We don't need to pretend that that's a, that's a good thing. The reason we want all of those things is because it's hardwired inside of us as beings made in the image of God. And when you investigate scripture, which is what we're going to be doing this morning, you will see exactly how that fits into God's plan for us. It's his plan. It's not ours. A resurrected people living in a resurrected universe. God's idea, how glorious it is. So today we're not just going to talk about how you can get to heaven. We basically do that every week. We do. And we're not just going to say heaven's better than hell. Well, yeah, that's true. We're going to go a little deeper than that. And we're not just going to say it's so good you can't even imagine how great it is. We're not going to do that either. We're going to get into God's word in a topical sermon that's totally different than what we normally do, because we're usually working through a book of the Bible in a series, but we're going to spend the time today to get excited about what the Bible actually teaches about heaven. You ready to go? Does that sound good? Let's do this. All right. Point number one, realize the difference between the present heaven and the new earth of eternity. If you were to ask the question, you know, you know, what's What's, the, what's heaven like? What will heaven be like? Those are actually two different answers, all right? What heaven is like right now is not exactly the same as what the Bible reveals it will be like. In 2 Corinthians, where we're going to be going in a couple weeks, we're going to start a new series, but the Apostle Paul says this in chapter 5. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, talking about our, our current body, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. And then he goes on to say a few verses later, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that's what we know. We know that for sure. We're going to get a new resurrected body that doesn't have all the aches and pains of this sin-cursed world. We're going to be with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're going to be with God the Father. If you know Jesus, that right there alone 
is enough. That's amazing. Yes. But what is heaven like right now that is different from the eternal home that we have? Well, first of all, if you go back to Revelation 21, the present heaven is not eternal. Sounds basic, but we don't always think about this this way. All right? What did Revelation 21 verse 1 say? If you could if you could look at that, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. If that wasn't clear enough, he elaborates, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. There's nothing mysterious about this. This is as plain as it can be. We're getting a new heaven and a new earth. Think of it this way. Like, all right, you live in the upstate of South Carolina, right? You got a nice little home. Let's just say one day you find out you're getting an inheritance and you have a new oceanfront mansion in Santa Barbara, California. All right? Some of you are like, I don't want to move to California. I get it. I get it. I get it. Uh, this, is, this is the pure, unadulterated California, the way God created it to be. And you get to go there and you get to live in this oceanside mansion you even have some old family that used to live in the upstate that now live out there that you'll get to see again that you haven't seen. And you even get a job to do what you've always dreamed of doing. And, all right, you're flying out there. But on the way out there, you know, it's such a long flight, you have to have a layover in Chicago, right? If somebody asks you, where are you going? You're not just going to say, I'm going to Chicago. That's not what you're saying, right? You're saying, I'm going to Santa Barbara, California. I'm going to have a new life there. If you, if you mention Chicago at all, it's like, I'm flying to Santa Barbara by the way of Chicago. If you want to interject, maybe you're staying in Chicago for a week or something like that, maybe. But you're excited about the final destination, okay? As awesome as heaven is right now, where our loved ones who have gone away are, that know Jesus and have, have confessed and repented, they, they are with Jesus right now. As amazing as heaven is, it's like Chicago compared to our final destination, of the new earth. And then we're going we're gonna to be seeing that in Scripture today. So here's what else we know about the present heaven. The present intermediate heaven is in a different dimension, distinctly separate from earth. It's a place where God dwells, but it's not eternal like God. Nothing ever in Scripture ever talks about heaven being an eternal place. What does Genesis 1 say? God created the heavens and the earth. Oh, of course, the heavens there is talking about the firmament, the galaxies, all that. But it also means God created heaven at some point in time, the place where he currently dwells. In contrast, the future heaven will be in the human realm. You see verse 3 there of, of Revelation 21? The dwelling place of God will also be the dwelling place of his people, humanity, in a resurrected earth. Verse 2 says that the new Jerusalem, which was in heaven, will come down and be a part of the new earth. This is really interesting if you think about it. That means right now there is a city in the current heaven called New Jerusalem that is in this different realm. And, and, and when God creates the new earth, He's going to take that city of New Jerusalem and it's going to be a part of the new earth. I love that. Here's what biblical theologian Wayne Grudem says about this. He sums it up pretty succinctly, all right? Christians often talk about living with God in heaven forever. 
But in fact, the biblical teaching is richer than that. It tells us that there will be new heavens and a new earth, an entirely renewed creation, and we will live with God there. There will also be a new kind of unification of heaven and earth in this new creation. Something that we've never seen before, quite like it. So, word here for all of the utopian idealists who dream of mankind creating heaven on earth. You know, or maybe you dream of creating heaven on Mars, if you, if you follow Elon Musk, I don't know. Uh, but you know how we want the world to be fixed of all its problems, and a lot of people give all they have to make that happen. If that's what you're going for, that's what you're living for, you will, you will be disappointed. It's not that that's a wrong desire, because that's a desire that God has given us. It's just wrong to believe that humans can achieve this. It's not coming from us. We can't do this apart from God. He will do it, not us. It's God's dream. We got it from him, and we just have to realize he's the one who's going to make it happen. God is the one who's going to initiate this. Revelation 6 actually tells us a little bit more about the present heaven. So if you want to just turn back a few pages to Revelation 6, uh, this is something that's going to happen. This, this is a prophecy of the tribulation. hasn't happened yet, but it tells us some deductive facts about the present heaven. And uh, I want us all to just put on our Sherlock Holmes hats for a few minutes here, okay? And let's get our deductive reasoning. When we, when we meditate on Scripture, it says so much more. So I'll read it. I'll read it, verses 9 through 11, and then we'll, then we'll go from there. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So what can we deduct from just those, those few verses about the present heaven? Some of these are going to be obvious, but I want you to follow me on this, all right? They were the same people in heaven as they were that were killed on earth. They, this demonstrates a direct continuity between our identity on earth and our identity in heaven. They were remembered for their lives on earth, right? And their memory wasn't wiped. Even of their pain, they remembered what happened to them on earth. They called out and raised their voices, indicating that we are going to have passion and emotion that's very much still going to be a thing. They were fully aware of each other as well as what was happening on earth. People in heaven right now are aware of what's going on in earth. And they even ask God to intervene on their behalf. And I've, I've gone over this passage with, with people before in Bible studies and stuff like that, and, and people have just talked like, whoa, whoa, people in heaven are pretty, pretty angry. Um, you know, you, you just transplant yourself into this, and it sounds a little intense, right? They want God to judge sinners right now. I mean, there's a whole other conversation we could have about that. But I really believe part of that is teaching us that when we are with God and we see him face to face and we see um, a, a world without sin, 
that we're going to have a deeper regard for the gravity of sin than we probably currently have right now, right? So they view sin as a strong way, but they also still have a deep concern for justice and retribution. So people in heaven are not just passive, disinterested, blissful people. They wear white white robes, which is obviously symbolic, but still it's a physical thing. It's a physical thing that you have. And God answers their question and knows exactly what is going on on earth down to the last detail. We know that, but it's obvious right there. Okay? This tells us that things that are going on in this earth are still connected with what's going on in the present heaven. It's not like you just forget everything about life in your old life in earth. They're very much corresponding to one another. So I hope you can see there's a lot of concrete things here that we can get about the present heaven just from a short passage like Revelation 6. Here's another incredible link. Think about this one, all right? In Genesis 3.24, we're told that after the fall, Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, they rebelled against God. He, God drove Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden. And at the east of the garden, he stationed a cherubim with a flaming sword that could turn every different way to guard the tree of life so that no human could, could go back into the garden. Now, there's no indication here with, with the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, there's no indication that it was stripped of its physicality and transformed into a spiritual entity, okay? Mankind's ability to live in the garden was destroyed. It's no longer accessible for mankind. But according to Revelation 2.7, the tree of life still exists. It currently is in the paradise of God, a place that's currently in heaven, which makes perfect sense because that's where the cherubim are. <laughs> so here's where I'm going with this. Though the rest of the earth fell under human sin, Eden was treated differently. We know it was a special place to God. This is where he came and visited and walked with Adam and Eve and talked with them in the cool of the garden. He would no longer do that after the fall. And if you stop and think about it for a second, the Garden of Eden with the Tree of Life most likely is still this physical place with the plants and the vegetation and the animals. I mean, why would it not be? Nothing in the Bible indicates that it's, it's not the same physical place. It's part of its identity. And if the tree of life's presence is mentioned in Revelation, it's also mentioned three times in Revelation 22. The only time we see the tree of life is in Genesis, in the very beginning, and then three more times in Revelation 22, the final chapter of the Bible. It's going to be part of the city, New Jerusalem, part of the great new earth. And so follow me on this. That is telling us that the presence of the tree of life not only suggests a physical presence and properties in heaven, but it's, and it's capable of containing physical objects, it also means, just like we read in Revelation 21, God is not done with, with relationally communing with mankind. In his plan, in his original plan, he is going to dwell once again with us. I love the fact that the Bible teaches everything is coming full circle. As the physical, original Garden of Eden in Genesis is also going to be with us, part of the human experience, in the very 
end of the new earth in Revelation 22. So, there are similarities with the present heaven and the heaven of eternity, but the new heaven and the new earth is something new. Something new, and that is very good news. If you don't get this foundationally, you're not going to fully appreciate the rest of the really good stuff that's coming up. Think about how much more exciting it is to be in a beautiful garden paradise with water, animals, an untainted relationship with God. That's so much better than just going to this like ethereal place up in the clouds with, you know, where you meditate and there's just vast openness. That's, what we, that's the picture I get when you think of like Eastern religions. It's like almost demonic in comparison to how grand it will actually be. We currently live in a sin-corrupted world between Eden and the New Earth. And, you know, just a few weeks back when we had our series in Romans 8, we talked about how creation is groaning because of the result of sin. Rebellion against God has created that. But what we truly long for is a return to the paradise of Eden, a relationship with God when he walks with us in the cool of the cool of the garden. That's what we all long for. Relationships are just better face to face. Are they not? You can't there's nothing that can replace being in person, face to face, hearing someone's voice, feeling their touch. Nothing nothing compares to that. Um, environment and atmosphere also enhance the face to face relationship. And I mean if, if you doubt that at all, just think about the number of kids who are having a hard time in school because school is only through a computer screen. It's not the same. As humans, we are physical just as much as we are relational. We're physical beings and relational beings. Another truth that we can see from Scripture about the present heaven is that humans are not in soul sleep before or after death. Okay? Pixar movies talk about that. Scripture never talks about that. All right? It doesn't. God did not create Adam as a spirit and then place him inside a body. That's not how it worked, right? Remember Genesis? God created a body out of the dust of the ground and then he breathed into it a spirit. So as humans, we are physical and we have the physical body that is inhabited by a soul. To be a created being, the way God created us to be fully human, we can't have soul and body separated. We're dead if that's the case. At home, um, a home, excuse me, that will not be destroyed by natural disaster is what we desire. A kingdom that will not fade away um, from man's weakness. A city with unshakable foundations. An inheritance that is incorruptible. That is what we long for. Adam was formed from the dust of the ground, establishing mankind's connection to earth. Just as we were made from the earth, we are made for the earth, and that's part of what we desire. But the cherry on top of all this is the good news of the gospel. It's that we're restored, not just spiritually and physically, but also we are restored relationally with God. That's what the Bible teaches us. God made us for his glory. 
Our main purpose in life is to show the truth of God's glory, his character, his attributes, all, all that he is. When we, sh- when we shine that with our life and we magnify that, we display the grandeur of God. And mankind is the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the only ones in all of creation, all that he made on this earth, that is in his image. And when we understand that, you start to see that redemption, in the end, is connected as Jesus Christ came to this earth and changes us and makes us into his image. He brings everything full circle to redeem, not just his children, but also this world. When we confess our sin and repent of going our own way apart from Jesus and turn to Christ, believe in the death and the resurrection, he's going to change us into being people who can actually show and glorify him in this earth. He's going to restore not only us, but the dust of the ground, which leads us into the second point today, point number two, relish the truths of God's redemptive plan. Something to take joy in. Scripture gives us a lot of images and a lot of hints about the implications of the new earth. And when you put all of those jigsaw pieces together, it forms an amazing, beautiful picture. So for starters, let's just go through some of these really fast. There are cities in the new earth, right? We see that throughout, throughout Revelation. Even in, in, in Ezekiel and Isaiah talk about that. We understand what cities are. We can imagine what that, what that looks like, right? Cities have streets, they have buildings, they have culture, they have art, they have music, they have goods and services. They have have places to go and gather. Conversations are had in cities. The eternal heaven is also described as a country in Hebrews 11. And we know about countries. They have history and territory and rulers and national interests. Citizens who are both diverse and unified. That's what a country entails. I have talked with people before who tell me and made a case that heaven doesn't have any mountains, it doesn't have any water. No bodies of water, no mountains there. I totally disagree with that. I've seen the passages that they kind of take out of context for that, but Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 describe all of these things. They describe the new earth having mountains, having rivers, Having flowers. Jesus Christ is the sun. That's going to be a lot different. He's going to be the light source. But to think of the new earth as a place that we can't imagine and wrap our minds around is just a disservice. Couldn't be further from the truth. The veil of sin is going to be removed. It is going to be, in one sense, way better than we could really wrap our minds around. But we still have a picture of what the beauty of this earth is. We still see beautiful imagery all around us in creation, right? But even that, think of the most beautiful place in nature you've ever been to. When the veil of sin is removed, even that is going to be like a little 16-inch grainy black and white TV compared to a high-def 4K. Like the new earth, when there is no more sin, no more pain, no more suffering, it's, going to be, it's no longer going to be the shadowlands 
We're going to be living in the presence of God. And to me, this is fascinating. We are going to have a giant, unexplored new earth with, with beauty that is, that is grander than anything we've ever quite seen before. There's going to be rulers, explorers, architects, artists, creators, builders. And, and we're going to have things to do, places to go in the new earth, right? I mean, why would we not? Work was a good thing that God instituted before the fall. Adam and Eve worked in the garden. They had a job. They had, job. They had to name animals. They had to do all these things pre-fall. Working is a way that we bring glory to God. It's satisfying. It's something that fulfills us when it's done for the glory of God. Because that's what we were created to do. Isaiah 65, Isaiah 66, 2 Peter 3, they all talk about the new earth. And one of the most beautiful things about God restoring us as well as his creation is what it reveals about his character. Think about what it reveals about his character, the character of our God. He's the ultimate salvage artist. In one sense, he can create anything out of nothing, right? He speaks it into existence. So he's got that that we, don't, we do not have, that ability. But he also is a restorer. He loves to renew things to their original condition and even make them better. I have always had respect and admiration for people who can restore like old furniture, you know, with character and history, and then they just like make it better than it even was like 200 years ago. That's pretty awesome if you think about it. When I was in high school, before I even knew I was called to be a pastor, I wanted to restore old muscle cars. That was just like, yes, what a that's just awesome. You take this old muscle car that's like all beat up, and then you put a new coat of paint on it, you fix the engine, you drive that thing, that's incredible. There's something about just restoring something to its former glory and then making it better. That's what our God is going to do with this world that is in decay right now. And the amazing thing is we're in the middle of his redemptive plan. We are, Jesus is at the very center of it, and Jesus changes us to change this world. Jesus Christ took our sin upon himself. He paid the price for our sin. He bore the wrath of a just God, so we wouldn't have to. And now he has chosen us not only to, to give us his righteousness, but he has chosen us to share his love and to shine his light in this world. That's what Christians are supposed to do. In Acts chapter 3, verse 21, Peter preached that Christ must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to, get this word, restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. Acts 3.21, that was a sermon like at the very beginning of the church age. This is part of the gospel message. And Peter didn't just learn that from the prophets of the holy prophets of old. When Peter, hoping for commendation and for a reward, pointed out to Jesus that he left everything behind to follow Jesus, Jesus didn't actually rebuke him right there in that moment. Instead, in Matthew 19, 27 and 28, this is what Jesus said. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Their nationality isn't going to be erased in the new earth. There's going to be a physical thing, a physical place where Peter and these other disciples are going to 
are going to be rulers in this new earth. Christ did not say after the destruction of all things. He didn't say after the abandonment of all things. He said after the renewal of all things. That's the character of our God. He restores, he renews. If you're hurting and you're in pain right now, your God, or the God that you need to know, will restore you and he will renew you. This is not a small semantic point. It draws the line in the sand between two fundamentally different theologies. This is really, if you want to really get to the nuts and bolts of it all, there is a version of Christianity that is oversimplified. Man fell into sin, and God judges sin, and God will save you from sin. That's all true, right? We, we believe that. But the Bible doesn't just start in Genesis 3 with the fall, does it? And it doesn't just end with Jesus on the cross either. I mean, as amazing as Jesus on the cross is, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that. The Bible doesn't end there. The Bible starts in Genesis 1. This is the other foundational theology that you have to understand. Genesis 1, God created this earth and then this universe, and he called it good. That's where it begins. Don't start in Genesis 3 at the fall. Start in Genesis 1. This is the full story. God created the earth, and it was good. Man fell. God must judge sin because he is holy and righteous. We saw that in Malachi. God sent Jesus into this world to redeem it, to purchase us out of the sin of slavery. And then what's going to happen in, in the end? He is going to restore this earth to another good place. It's not that good right now. I mean, it is good in some sense, right? But there's a lot of bad. He is going to make all things new once again. God judges, yes, but with his judgment always comes renewal. So you have to understand the full story of the gospel. Don't start in Genesis 3. Start in Genesis 1 and end in Revelation 22. God created the world. It was good. Mankind fell into sin. God must judge sin. He did it through Jesus on the cross, and he renews all things. Can we get an amen for that? Mankind was designed to live on earth for God's glory. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ's death and resurrection secured. It secured a renewed humanity upon a renewed earth. God is a restorer and God is a renewer, so let's praise him for that. Let's praise him for that. The prophets Ezekiel and Isaiah reveal quite a lot more about the restoration of the new Jerusalem on the new earth. And we're just scratching the surface today. We're not going to, we don't have time to get all into it. But in Isaiah 60, verses 3 through 5, and in John's Revelation, they both use a very, very similar language about the new earth. It's almost like carbon copy. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into the new Jerusalem, and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. That's the phrase we see in Isaiah and Revelation. So from that alone, you could make another very good case that your national identity will still be known in the new earth. I mean, the kings. Although John doesn't elaborate on this in Revelation, Isaiah specifically points out when he's talking about the new Jerusalem back in this prophecy, he specifically points out and mentions some of the products that once pagan nations will bring into the new Jerusalem and the new earth. 
the ships of Tarshish, the trees of Lebanon, the camels of Ephah, the oil and incense of Sheba, we, we will be brought, they will be brought into the New, New Jerusalem. And these are from people who were redeemed of all these different nations. And it says that they will do it to proclaim the praise of the Lord. It's more proof that we're going to have work to do in the new earth. And the mind-blowingly diverse place that it will be, where people are from every tribe, tongue, and nation, none of that is going to be erased. The treasures and natural resources that were once linked, this is the amazing thing, they were once linked to idolatry, and they were used in rebellion, those same things will be gathered again into the new city to the praise of God's ultimate glory. God is a restorer. So the products of human culture aren't going anywhere. It's part of who we are. It's part of the new earth. And this is truly amazing. I think it changes the way we should be looking at the world. In Isaiah 10, the prophet tells us that God will, will, will cut down those things, those, those, those gifts from, from God. That, that mankind has used in an idolatrous way, in a rebellious way. You know, he sunk those ships. He cut down those forests because man worshipped that instead of the creator. But those same objects that were singled out as being destroyed in judgment again turn up in Isaiah 60 as, as, as elements of worship. This seeming paradox of Scripture doesn't just teach destruction. It teaches judgment and renewal. And there's a lot more we can say about this. I could literally be here all day. But John, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they all help us envision the new earth. Peter, not only is a world of natural wonders, but also is one with multinational citizens and cultural treasures. And if you don't interpret scripture the right way and you just gloss all over this, you're totally missing something. You can take things in this life that were meant for the wrong purpose and you can start using them for the right reason, to glorify God. The things themselves are not inherently evil. It's what we do with them. And even in the new earth, we're going to have all these amazing natural resources and we're not going to use them for idolatry like we have down here. We're going to use them for worship of God. John Piper said this about God's redemptive plan. He said, Christianity is not a platonic religion that regards material things as mere shadows of reality, which will be sloughed off as soon as possible. Not the mere immortality of the soul, but rather the resurrection of the body and the renewal of all creation is the hope of the Christian faith. You see how much bigger it is when you look at the full story? Our hope rests in the God-man Jesus Christ. He's the one that makes all of this possible. And my last point today, number three, is receive the gift of joyfully anticipating ultimate restoration. We don't have to dread this place that we can't wrap our minds around and we don't want to go. We can joyfully anticipate ultimate restoration. Mankind was told to subdue the earth and have dominion over it, all the way at the very beginning in Genesis. And we are to use what God has given us for his glory. This means that we must be good stewards of the earth that God has entrusted to us. So let's, let's get some application here. What, what do we do with this? The last thing I want for you is, is to hear all this information 
and like, oh, I have some new insight, a new perspective. Like, that's going to get you excited. I want you to get excited about that. But I don't want you just to take it there and end it with that. We talked about this in Life Group this, this last Thursday. When we receive truth and we hear what God's word is telling us and we get a proper understanding, we can't just soak it in and let it sit there until it becomes dead, like the Dead Sea, right? Uh, we, we have to let it pour out of us. We, it, we need to be rivers of living water. We need to do something with this truth. So I think right here the most fitting thing to do would be to read 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3 um, gives us some specific applications. So if you could just turn in your Bible just a few books back, you know, turn past Jude and the Johns, the, the three epistles of John, into 2 Peter 3. Here's something that we can do with this truth. Verse 1, 2 Peter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So the day of judgment and destruction is for the ungodly. It's not for his people. Verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So this earth will be dissolved. We can't save it. But God will restore it. And I don't want you to just think here today, all right, heaven's incredible. Yay, heaven. I can't wait. Let's go there. Because so many people, even young kids, they hear like how incredible heaven sounds. Mom and dad are going to be there. My loved ones are going to be there. And it's like, okay, I just want to go there. Just send me there. I'll do, oh, yeah, I'll pray a prayer. Sure. I'll do that. I'll say whatever it takes to get, to get my card punched. 
to get on that ride, that plane ride to Santa Barbara, a.k.a. a way better place than that. That's not what we see in Scripture, okay? <laughs> yeah. That's not what we see in Scripture. Right here in 2 Peter 3, you have to have repentance. There is judgment for sin. We don't just go to heaven because it sounds fun. Before you ever go there, you have to understand that your relationship with God has been broken by sin. You aren't allowed into Eden right now. There's a cherubim there guarding it. The fall has affected all of us, including you. But we see here that we are to remember what the prophets told us is coming. We can look forward to it. We can anticipate it. But before we do that, we have to get our hearts right. We have to repent of our sin. We have to stop living for the treasures of this earth and in idolatrous ways, putting those above the creator. We have to repent of that. We have to turn to Jesus Christ. The most important decision you will ever make is giving your life to Jesus. Confessing your sin, believing in his death and resurrection, and saying, there's more to my life than just meets the eye. It's not just about me. It's about this grand, marvelous story that God has revealed to us in his word, the story of redemption, this story of renewal. We can't hear God's full story without getting a little excited, right? I mean, doesn't this excite you? Without a doubt, some of us walked in here today burdened, hurt, depressed. Maybe you're even traumatized about something. Dreams have crumbled. You know, your ambitions that you have, maybe they're just not going anywhere. You seem to be in a, in a rut. Receive the gift of joyfully anticipating ultimate restoration. That's going to happen one day. The biblical understanding of this truth is that it's not us who make it all happen and change everything. It's God who changes everything. It's his plan to restore all things. It's his will to make you a new creation. God created this world, and it was good. Man fell, sin corrupted our natures, hostility reigns right now. But God made a way, he sent his son Jesus to restore your soul and to give you a new heart. And one of the reasons why I had this one-off message right here this morning is because it does give us a bridge between Malachi and where we're going in 2 Corinthians. You have to understand the full story of redemption to fully get what 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. I'm going to read you verses 17 through 21. This is who we are. This is what we're supposed to do with all of this, okay? It's not just to be happy that we're going to a better place. There's even more to it, right? 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Even right now, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. 
God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. There's a part you play right now. Yes, we're anticipating the ultimate restoration, but you're a part of it right now. Right now, he has made you a new creation. Right now, you are an ambassador of reconciliation. To be reconciled means all is not right. There is sin in this world. There are things that are awful going on right now as we speak. You and I aren't just to anticipate heaven and they go to a happy place one day. We are to say, right now, I have a job to do. Yeah, I'll have, I'll have, I'll have a whole bunch of amazing jobs. I'll be able to create, explore, like do all kinds of amazing stuff in the new earth for eternity. But right now, God has me in this place. Where does God have me right now? Whatever, wherever that is, it's, not, it's, it's, it's pretty obvious what we're supposed to be doing with it. We're supposed to be restoring people through giving them the good news of Jesus Christ. I mean, he restores them. We share the truth. He does the rest. Worship team, you can come up right here. There's a story that I read about a girl named Florence Chadwick. And this is a girl who was the first woman to swim the English Channel both ways. And all the way back in the 50s, she had this, she, she would swim all these, all these different places that nobody had ever swam before. She's a really amazing woman. But back in the 50s, she said, I wanted to swim from the island of Catalina to the mainland coast of California. And so she was swimming for 15 straight hours. This is like in the 50s. But the day that she was swimming, it was a nasty day, all right? There was a fog. It was really cold. And there was a boat that was traveling alongside her that was just there with her just in case, you know, anything happened. And she's swimming and swimming and swimming, and there's this dense fog, and she can't really see where she's going. And she just gets exhausted. She gets worn out. And she said, hey, I think you need to pull me in. I, I, don't, I think I'm going to have to try this another day. I can't do it. The people on the ship that were right next to her in this little boat were like, no, you can do it. You, can, you got this. You're close. She's like, no, I, I can't. I can't. Just pull me in. She gets pulled in. She soon discovered that she was less than a half a mile away from the shore. She was pretty bummed about that. And the next day, there was a press conference. And she said there, I think I would have made it if I could have just seen the shore. I think I would have made it if I could have just seen the shore. For, for those of us who know Jesus, the believers in this room today, the prize is Jesus Christ. And the shore is the new earth where we will dwell with him, well, where we will have this face-to-face -face relationship with our God. The shore for our final destination is the new earth. And if we can see through the fog of this present life, all the sin, all the things that get in the way, if we can remember like we just had in the Lord's Supper today, his death, his resurrection, his shed blood for you, and you can truly see that this shore is not that far off. This new earth is so much better than what we have right now. Why are we living as if it doesn't exist? Why are we putting all of our eggs in this basket of this present life when that shore is just a little far off? Just, just, it's just there, within reach. Just look through the fog. 
of this present life. Look to Jesus. Look and live. Joyfully receive his gift and anticipate his ultimate restoration.